KWSS 93.9 FM in Phoenix, Arizona is not responsible for the contents of the following program. That's on you, man. There it is, the mothership. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. What if I told you I'd take you to a place you'd never been and do something to you that's never been done? Welcome aboard the Mothership Radio Show. My name's Kevin Gassman, hanging out with you for the next hour. We're going to get strange and unusual tonight with the rock doc, Dr. Neil Ratner, who wrote a book about his life from concert production with Pink Floyd to becoming Michael Jackson's anesthesiologist. And also we'll hear about his travels to Africa and his day with a shaman. So the conversation gets a little interesting with him. Also, uh, how many Americans believe lizard people run our country? Well, the number might surprise you. We're ready to believe you. And we'll also talk about how you can help your health and well-being by staying at a cabin by the lake once owned by Aleister Crowley. This is insane. I mean, do we really have to listen to this? Interesting stuff on the show, but I want to start off with the March plan to storm the gates of Area 51, man. But I would say don't pack your bags just yet. Apparently, there's a Facebook page, an event, if you will, Storm Area 51, they can't stop all of us, which also means some of you will be stopped. <laughs> so, you know, it's not like storming the beaches of Normandy where, you know, these soldiers, you know, some of them knew they weren't coming back. Well, they all knew that they had the chance of not coming back. This is a little different. This is voluntarily going into a, a, a place with high technology that we're seeking for our own good. So if the technology is that good, do you really think it's just a bunch of soldiers with guns defending the, uh, the perimeter? I don't know. This is crazy. This is crazy. This is crazy. I don't know what they have to do that in case there are this many people. Of course, when you post something like this, it's just for fun. And now that there's a buzz behind it, I'm sure that Area 51 could be a little bit more prepped. But what makes me laugh a little bit is, you know, they can't stop all of us, again, which means some of them will be stopped. It reminds me of the movie Born in East LA. with Cheech Marin. He gets deported to Mexico, to Tijuana. He's got no ID, but he's an American citizen. What's happening? And he's trying to get back across the border. So he tries all these different methods. And uh, who's the Daniel Stern is the coyote. Now this right here is your new professoral right there. You listen to him, okay? Who's helping him along the way. And at the end of it, he can't get across. But finally, they all decide, you know what, man? If we all get together and we all crash the gate, then who's going to stop us? What are they going to do? But do you take that risk anyway? So I don't know how many people really are thinking this through. Let's go through this little, this is the about the event. Quote, we will all meet up at the Area 51 Alien Center tourist attraction and coordinate our entry. If we Naruto run, we can move faster than their bullets. Let's see them aliens. So obviously it's a joke. (laughs) There's no ways around it. If you read it, if you didn't read it, then it's kind of like, yeah, man, the Storm Area 51, man, they can't stop all of us. Who wants to go? What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. And do you think people will show up? I bet you people will show up, even though it's a joke. I mean, Naruto Run, if you don't know what that is, I didn't know what that was either. I had to look it up. And uh, fortunately, someone else does know what that is. It's kind of an awkward kind of running. It's kind of an anime thing. And you're leaning forward kind of into the wind, if you will. You're leaning forward with your arms back by your sides. And you're kind of like at the same level as your back as you're leaning forward. So that's how you're running forward. Supposedly that's going to dodge the bullets. Or I guess make you move faster than the bullets. 
So if you're adding that to that, wow, man, you're going to be running faster than bullets. Obviously, I smell a red flag right away. What are you people? On dope? So now you know it's a joke, something blah, 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 blah. But it, ga- it gathers momentum in the media because, you know, it's a slow news day. And I saw stories from, you know, 200,000 people all the way to a million people are going. So on the page, it does say who is going. Of course, people have added they're going. But this is more, I think, you know, keyboard warrior type stuff. You, yeah, I'll go, man. Yeah, let's stick it to it, man. Let's find out what's going on. We 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 want that technology. You know, I mean, we do. <laughs> but, I mean, this is a weird way of, I guess, expressing yourself to uh, to storm the gates of Area 51. And it's got a lot of people interested in it. Almost a million and a half people are interested in this event on Facebook. Now, when I went to the page on uh, Saturday, the 13th of July, going to the event, 746,000. And the amount interested in the event, 674,000. Now, what I find interesting is that both sets of numbers are the same numbers, 746 and 674. <gasps> so that's what I see on my page now. Am I thinking too, too much into this? Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Probably, <laughs> but I think it's interesting nonetheless to see that. Now, it's fun to watch all these people kind of post their comments like I said, everyone's kind of that uh, I can say and do and be whatever I want to be because no one's going to, you know, find me. No one's going to know it's me. It's going to be just, you know, the kind of person I really, really want to be. And this is what I'm going to post. And, you know, a lot of it's negative. A lot of it's kind of just interesting stuff people put out there. Uh, there's comedy stuff in there. There's the, you know, somebody posted a, a meme of how to approach Area 51 by colors. And like the dark green color would be the Kyles. Now, the Kyles are the, uh, I guess, the, the young men who enjoy monster energy drinks. That's from what I understand. So that's what the Kyles are. I've seen a few memes about Kyle before as well. And the white color is the Karens. And the Karens are the, I don't know, they all have the same kind of haircut. And they all have to speak to the manager. Wait, did that waitress listen to a word I said? So just think of that. <laughs> I think that's the best approach to Area 51. Get a bunch of Karens to uh, get them to open up. So everyone's having a little fun with it, as you, can, as you can see. But I think some people will be actually taking this seriously. I think there might be people that will show up. But I also think that there will be people waiting for people to show up. And maybe media will be there to record it. I'm sure they will. I can't imagine them not. Why not be there on September 20th when people start showing up and you're going to see what... I mean, look, they can't stop all of us. That's, the, that's in the name of the event. That means some people will get stopped. I mean, I don't know what kind of like danger there can really be, how far it would go if there were a number of people that did this. I'm not willing to find out. Check, please. I bet you people will. I don't know if you would be interested in going and doing this or just because safety in numbers kind of thing. I don't know. It's kind of a unique subject to talk about. Maybe that's why it's all over the news, man, at least all over the Internet. People just want to know, like, what's going on back there, you know? So it's, it's an interesting event in the fact that I know it's fake, but it also tells me it's kind of a poll. It's a poll on how many people, how many Americans or how many people on Facebook want to know what's going on at Area 51. Okay, people, move along. There's nothing to see here. I seriously doubt anyone's going to go to it. I'm sure some people will, just out of the sure 
insanity that is life that they will go there and meet. And uh, these are going to be the brave ones, I'd imagine, because it's not a good idea to go up against Area 51. Some will find it fascinating. Some may find it frightening. But it is all true. So I think what's going to happen is when it gets closer to the time of the event, people will get notifications and they'll be like, wait, are we really doing this? <laughs> and then we'll see who, who's going to stay, who's going to go, man. If we're going to come back. We're going to hear from the rock doc, Dr. Neil Ratner. We're going to hear about his time with Michael Jackson. He was his anesthesiologist from 1994 to 2002. And he'll also talk about his visit with the shaman in Africa. So that's coming up here next. We'll hear about a poll. Speaking of polls, we'll hear about how many people believe that lizards rule the world, or at least America. We'll hear that number. And Alistair Crowley's cabin by the lake got bought, and now you can have a health and well-being spa day there. <laughs> so we'll talk about that when we come back. This is the Strange and Unusual right here on the Mothership Radio Show. Open your mind real wide now. Freaking out, man. You are freaking out, man. Dr. Neil Ratner is with us here on the Mothership Radio Show, and uh, there's a lot to talk about, of course, uh, your history of being in rock and roll, as well as being an anesthesiologist, and the stories that go along with that are now in your memoir entitled The Rock Doc, which is what your website is as well, neilratnerrockdoc.com. Dr. Neil Ratner joins us here on the Mothership Radio Show. We're going to get strange and usual. Are you ready? I'm ready, man. <laughs> and you know what's funny is, uh, you know, with your history and everything, and there's a few things, of course, I want to touch upon, but, you know, we're talking about aliens, UFOs, the paranormal, and, and I understand you're, uh, you're very interested in this, so what, what's something that, for you, uh, that brought you into the world of the paranormal? I don't know. I think um, probably, <laughs> you're going to laugh, the science fiction movies of the 50s. Okay. I've heard that before. <laughs> you know, I grew up with TV, and I was very much of a TV freak. And and I just remember, and I was also very much of a reader, and so I was very much attracted to science fiction. So between the science fiction I wrote and the early kind of space-oriented TV stuff, I developed an interest in that subject. You know, I was wondering because you know, as far as like you grew up at a time where that was so prevalent in your, I guess in your in society, was it not? Was it? I mean, those movies, uh, Roswell just happened. It's kind of like in your face a lot more than today. Uh, yes and no. I think as of lately, you know, if people are paying attention, <laughs> right. there's been some interesting stuff that's come out. Oh, yeah, right. I mean, this is the admission that the uh, the government was looking into searching UFOs was a pretty big thing. And the videos, of course, being released. Um, yeah, come yeah. on. That's big time, don't you think? It, it is. But why are we numb to it? Because we're in a world of fake news. And people don't know what to believe anymore. And that's been labeled as such for so long that people accept it as fact instead of really looking at what it what it is. Hmm. I, I, maybe you think also the movies might have softened it for a lot of people, you know, as far as. Yeah, sure. Of course we are. You know that, you know, it's not a, it's not it's not registering you know high enough, I guess, you know. Uh, yeah, 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 right. That's Hollywood. Right, right. <laughs> that's, right. That's, I guess what people think. That's Hollywood. <laughs> softening the blow since 1935 or whenever Hollywood was, uh, 
you know, whenever it started, I guess. I mean, it's it's interesting though. You're right. It's like we're we're just we don't know what to believe to a certain degree out there, which is interesting. Um, this is out there. You know, there's a lot of interest being, I guess, revived into this subject, if you will. But uh, how long? So you've been in it since you were a, a kid, basically. Yeah, and, pretty much. And I still read a lot of science fiction. And, you know, I have to admit, I watch some TV and uh, every now and then I'm attracted to that. When I see articles about it, I certainly read about it. And it's of great interest to me. I've never, unfortunately, had any personal experience. I'd like to. <laughs> Are you sure there's not something you might have seen that you were like, oh, I'm not sure I know what that is? doesn't have to be a high in the sky. Uh, you know, there was, yeah, there was one time. There was one time. I lived in Mexico for four years. I went to medical school in Mexico. And we were in this place uh, on the coast of Mexico called Yelapa, Y-E-L-A-P-A, a little bit south of Puerto Vallarta. And we were definitely out one night uh, sitting around looking at the stars, and there was something that we weren't sure of. Was it a satellite? Was it... Something else, I don't know, but that's the only time. But I'll tell you another interesting story. I spent a, a lot of time in Africa, uh, and I also have spent a lot of time studying with shamans. And so for uh, my 25th anniversary, my wife and I wanted to take a trip to Africa, and there was a South African shaman named Credo Muthwa. And he was described in the Wall Street Journal as the Pope of the Zulus. I mean, you should check him out. He, the guy's really a trip. There have been books written about him. And through good. friends, uh, I was able to arrange for him to sort of spend an afternoon with us on our 25th anniversary. And we went to his place outside of Johannesburg. He had like a little farm outside of uh, uh, about a couple hours outside of Johannesburg. And we were ushered into his house by his assistant. And the whole living room wall was a scene he had painted of an alien planet. Wow. And when, you know, it, and it was shocking. Let, let me tell you, Kevin, when you walked, first of all, he's a big man. And he wears robes and all kinds of necklaces and stuff like that. And, and I had read a lot about him, but I had never read anything about his interest in alien civilizations and the fact that we had been visited. And when I saw this painting, it was just unbelievable. And of course, at one point, I did ask him about it. And, you know, he, as a shaman, uh, had no doubt that um, not only had we been visited, uh, but that we continue to be visited and that aliens have had a huge influence on our society and civilization. So that was kind of a, a pretty freaky experience. And then I had another experience with um, a shaman of sorts. There's a Native American, a very famous Native American book by a, a Native American elder named Black Elk, and it's called Black Elk Speaks. It's a very interesting spiritual book. We met his grandson, Wallace Black Elk, and we took him out to dinner. And again, it was very much of the visits that his ancestors had had to help develop their society and the spiritual wisdom that they were given, and et cetera, et cetera. So certainly in that whole shamanic world 
there's no question to them of what's really going on. So, so there's some consistency with societies around the globe, obviously, from the time being of uh, not knowing what's going on in this planet to all of a sudden they find out how to do things. And, and I'm wondering, too, if, um, you know, this was pre-religion, probably, in a sense of we talked about this last week, is that religion kind of uh, got out in front of the book. And, I think religion came out of this to a certain extent. Right. And I think a lot of people use religion to kind of get them off of thinking this way. You know, no, think this way, not that way. You know, kind of like it's, it, this is the real way, not, not what you really see or not. Because what... it's, it's easier for them to believe it that way. Right. I think. Right. Because what all these people helped you, but they're not here. Where are they? You're lying. What are you talking about? You know, what kind of help you Show me proof? Show me proof. <laughs> yeah. Right. As if the cave drawings aren't proof. You know, that's one of my things. So, so someone asked me, they're like, what, what would you say to prove that, you know, aliens or UFOs, you know, exist or and visited? I always say, well, the cave drawings and paintings back in the day, I mean, do you think those artists were just making this up, you know? Uh, absolutely, but also things like, you know, a couple of years ago I went to Peru and things like the Nazca Lines. Please explain that to me. Right, well, yeah, those are very interesting. <laughs> you know, getting the help from aliens, you know, as both these uh, stories you just mentioned, you know, must be all around the world. It must have been helped out. And I'm wondering if, if these were, you know, the good aliens got here first and then other aliens came and kind of gave us the other story or something else to kind of mess with us in a sense. So are we are we living amongst or are we visited amongst good and bad aliens? Are the good here to prevent, you know, to protect us from the bad aliens? Well, another way of looking at it is or have bad humans co-opted the good words of the, of the ah. aliens, period, as opposed to good and bad aliens. Oh, we certainly know there are good and bad humans. <laughs> that Very true on that. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, I, I don't think it's just men and women come, you know, I think it's, uh, they say, you know, women come from Venus, men come from Mars. I, you know, there's there's both in, in, in each gender from each planet, you know? Uh, yeah, really. I think there's, you know, that's just the beginning of it, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, it's funny, you say you travel and you visited these countries and, you know, the word indigenous comes up a lot from those places where people, that's where they're from and nobody else has touched them in a sense. Do you think that word indigenous is going to be antiquated soon? Antiquated in, in mean, terms of the fact that there will be no people that we can call indigenous anymore? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's the answer to the question, right? We become so homogenized and and... There are very few, uh, well, I guess in the Amazon, there are still a few isolated tribes, maybe in New Guinea and stuff. But apart from that, you know, again, we've become totally homogenized. So what is indigenous anymore? That's what I'm, right. So maybe, you know, thousands of years, I'll look back on the, the indigenous people of New York, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, who knows, thousands of years from now, we may be considered indigenous. Right. That's what I'm saying is. <laughs> I mean, it's all eventually going to become one. I, I can't imagine that's not the plan where we're all, you know, I, I always say you find out who the true a-holes are when we're all one color, <laughs> you know. I agree with that. And, and, you know, unfortunately, we seem to be in a world today where uh, the powers to be, let's say, are going in the exact opposite direction. But hopefully the powers of the universe will be stronger than them. Right on. I like that. We got the, the rock doc with us. Neil Ratner, Dr. Neil Ratner, hanging out with us. He's got a book, The Rock Doc, and it's all about his uh, history working in rock and roll to anesthesiology and 
uh, really interesting stuff that you've been involved in. Um, and we'll get into a few of those if you don't mind. I'd like to ask a couple questions for sure. Uh, on anything that. you like, man. I'm an open book. <laughs> All right, right on. <laughs> well, speaking of book, yeah, exactly. Well, let me ask you this. As far as being a kid growing up with sci-fi, what's one thing you see now and or have you seen during your lifetime come true in something you've seen as a kid in sci-fi? Cell phones. Communicators on Star Trek. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, that's the thing that comes to mind, uh, or, you know, immediately, but, you know, artificial intelligence. That didn't exist when I was a kid. Right. Look at where that's gone. And who knows where that's going? You know, what's interesting is like coming up with the idea of cell phones or, you know, the communication that we saw in Star Trek. You know, was that idea like in the minds of someone in the 1800s? Probably not, you know? So like, what did it take for someone to plant that seed in Gene Roddenberry's head to think about these kind of communications and these kind of travels? You know, it's interesting you should ask that question because I think it was last night I was watching one of those shows and I think they posed the same question and they dated it back to Roswell and everything post-Roswell, right. and whether or not uh, we really gained some unbelievable advances in technology that led to all the technology that we have now. You know, there's also the theory of, and I totally believe that. I mean, once that is out there, obviously there's more interest in this type of technology and everything, but there's also ideas that, you know, we're, we're given these ideas, you know, through either dream or through just thought, whatever it is, that maybe that we're getting these ideas planted by you know the aliens in a sense that here's something you should work on or here's something you should think about. And I think once you put it out in, in the, in the ether, if you will, then someone's going to pick it up. <laughs> you know I mean? There's, I, I, there's a study I saw where people in, you know, Australia and a group study in a group in Australia and a group in England. And the group in Australia was thinking about something and this group in, in England picked up what they were thinking about. Oh, Oh, thought transference. Right. They did a lot of experiments with that, uh, I've seen some of the films of that. It's really quite fascinating stuff. But in relation to what you're saying, if you look through history at, at many of the great inventions, although they're credited to one individual, there were many individuals or at least a few working on the same thing around the world as if the idea was then in the cosmic consciousness for anyone who could pick up on it. You know, when you have that brilliant idea in your head that's going to make a billion dollars and you don't do anything about it, someone's going to, right? No question about it, because they're mostly simple ideas anyway that anybody could think of if they tried. Right. Or, or access if they tried, let's say. <laughs> yeah, exactly on that. Uh, Dr. Neil Ratner is with us here on the Mothership Radio Show, getting strange and unusual with the rock doc and, you know, your history of being in the world of rock and roll. I mean... Uh, just the fact that you worked with Pink Floyd, your production company, on the Dark Side of the Moon tour in 1973. I mean, wow. <laughs> That's, uh, I think everybody would be like, what was it like, man? <laughs> you know, uh, obviously I'm asked the question a lot, and it, it's, a, it's kind of a funny answer. When you're working, right, things are a lot different than, you know, as I like to say, you know, the Dark Side of the Moon tour for me was not laying on my couch with a <laughs> pair of headphones smoking a joint. <laughs> of course, right. That would be one thing. But when you're actually working and you're responsible for the production, you can't really appreciate 
what you're involved in because you're too involved in it. Mm -hmm. I knew I was involved in an amazing tour. We were doing things that nobody had ever done before. You know, I think we were some of the first to bring lasers on the road. We were using all kinds of pyro that nobody had tried before. We were running a guy wire from the back of a stadium to the top of Nick Mason's head and throwing, you know, then then a, uh, an airplane with probably a 20 foot wingspan, we would send on the guy wire to explode above his head. I mean, we were really being innovated. We knew that we were doing incredible stuff. And of course the music was great. Did we know that it would become what it became? No, <laughs> how could anybody? Sure. Um, but it was an amazing experience nevertheless, just to be involved in that level of production back in those days and to try the things that we did. And of course, the level of the musicianship and, and the album itself was just brilliant. But did you didn't get like an off night to watch it and enjoy what you put together? No. <laughs> oh, that's, that's sad. I, I'm sorry to hear yes. that. <laughs> Kevin, now that I think about it. <laughs> um, no, I was working hard, you know, and sure. there were so many things that could go wrong. And this was in oh, the day sure. prior to cell phones and computers. So, you know, everything was a chore. And if something went wrong, trying to fix it on the spur of the moment was not easy. So, so you were always on guard and stuff. So with they, so the, obviously they came to you with what they wanted to do. And was that kind of a, a full like description of what, like what they gave you was everything they needed to do or is any kind of like No, it wasn't like on. that at all. No? Actually, what happened was, so I was, uh, I was in the music business and I got this offer to be tour manager for Emerson, Lake and Palmer. And so I moved to London. And shortly after I arrived in London, I got a surprise phone call from an old girlfriend of mine from college. And she had gotten married, was living in London, and wanted me to meet her husband. Great. Went over, met her husband, and her husband was a guy named Peter Watts. And Peter had been the road manager for the Pretty Things, and then he became the chief sound technician and road manager of the Pink Floyd. <laughs> and eventually just the, the chief sound guy for the Pink Floyd. And so... Um, he and I uh, became incredibly friendly, uh, and when I started my company, I needed technical people, because I'm not a sound and lighting guy, but I needed sound and light and all that. I was an organizational guy, transportation, stuff like that, money guy. Um, he turned me on to the technical people that I needed to make my company really top of the line, top, top of the line. I started to uh, sell my services. I got a big tour for Emerson, Lake and Palmer. I'm out on the tour. And then Peter called me up and he said, and I could hear in his voice that things were not good. What's the matter, Peter? Well, you know, we're working on this new album, Dark Side of the Moon. And we decided we would go out and try and tour it before we've even released it, before it's even finished. And everything went wrong. It was a short English tour. I didn't have enough sound, I didn't have enough lighting. I wanted to do quadraphonic sound, our lighting guy, Arthur Max has all kinds of plans, and the only way we could accomplish this is if your company joins forces with us. And I was just shocked, because Pink Floyd had never taken an outside company, and I had never even thought to approach Peter, you know, to see if they would use the company. And so he went and spoke to Steve O'Rourke, the manager, I went to see Steve, Steve agreed, we joined forces, and that's how it happened. My company supplied much of the sound, lighting, 
plus the technical expertise on it. Of course, they had some of their own. Uh, but then it was all of my trucks, uh, my road crew, et cetera, et cetera. It was their production. Right, right. I got and you. The production. I had nothing to do with creating the production. No, but I just helped make it happen. Sure. Well, yeah, that's, that's you're, you're the backstage rock star, man. I mean, you, <laughs> your help to put that together, I mean, had, had helped out a lot of people watching that show, I'm sure, <laughs> you know. I'm sure that I can tell by people's faces they were loving it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just real I went real quick. I did see uh, Pink Floyd in the Division Bell tour in the mid '90s, and uh, I had a uh, field seat, so I was about 30 rows from the stage, and I figured like this is the wrong place to be for the show. I need to be <laughs> up and above so I can see everything, and that was my bad. So, but uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. want to be able to see the whole thing because there's so much going on. Right, right, and that's and that's what I think. What's exactly what Pink Floyd brought to shows, isn't it? I mean, they're kind of the pioneers of of the visual art show to a rock show. Oh, no question about it. Although at that time there were a couple of others. You know, you had uh, David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust. I had done a, also a huge tour for Emerson Lake and Palmer, which was incredibly unique in that my concept was all right. You only have to go to me. I will take care of everything that you need relative to touring, right? And that was new because before that, they had would hire a sound company, a lighting company, a trucking company, or this or that. And I put it all under one roof. And when I went to Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and I said, and I will, now in this case, I said, and I will build any production stuff you want as long as we make a deal so that we can both make money. And so in that one, I got very involved in the production because Greg Lake says to me, he says, you know, we go to all these big open venues and these impersonal places, these arenas, these stadiums, they're all different. They're impersonal. Wouldn't it be great if we had our own theater? I said, what do you mean? He said, let's build a theater every night. We'll build a theater with full theatrical curtaining and a huge proscenium arch, put everything inside our lights, our sound, we'll feel comfortable, I'll get some Persian carpets. Now that had never been done before. And we tried to do it, it was an incredible uh, feat. I mean, we created a stage 60 by 30 by 30 that we put up and took down uh, every night that we played. Wow. And we did it with pulleys. There were no hydraulics back then. Oh, <laughs> and it was, uh, there's actually a film of it you could see on YouTube, uh, YouTube, I think, called the Manticore film. But at any rate, so uh, on some of those tours, I did get involved in the production. But Pink Floyd, I was backstage. Right, I got you. Right, well, still, I mean, it's just great that you were there, you know, that's just to have that experience of being in that, in that element, I guess you can say. Um, yeah. it, it, not, not only in the, in the rock and roll world, but uh, being a doctor, you had a uh, pretty... Pretty notable celebrity as a client uh, named Michael Jackson, and that was in the mid to late '90s. Yes. How does that work out? What do you you know? What? How do you get connected with Michael Jackson as an anesthesiologist? I went through the music business, and then I decided to make the career change and become a doctor. I had had two dreams as a kid. One was to be actually a drummer, but I ended up in the business end, and one was to be a uh, uh, a doctor. So. After about five, six years, I had accomplished everything I'd set out to on the business end. <clears throat> and I had this epiphany. I saw this movie. I ended up in a hospital with kidney stones. And, and I said, I'm going to be a doctor. But I wasn't sure, certainly at that point, what kind of doctor I wanted to be. And it was a long, hard road to get back 
even to, you know, I had walked out of college, so I had to go back to college. Uh, then I couldn't get into an American medical school because, you know, there are so few spots. And I had this weird story. I had to go to medical school in Mexico, uh, spent four years there. Then I um, had to do a year of unpaid internship to get back into the American system. And then I had to decide what kind of doctor I wanted to be. And I had always been fascinated with the idea of being able to take your hands and fix the human body. And so I decided that I would be a surgeon. But after two years of surgical training, I realized that wasn't for me. And the other side of the table was calling. The anesthesiologist, mm. they knew my story. And of course, you know, uh, there are drugs involved in rock and roll. And they, they thought that this might be an interesting specialty for me. As a, you know, it was, they were joking around in a sense. But in reality, it wasn't a joke because having an intimate knowledge of something makes you much better at administering that. Sure. And I had had a different level of experience than 99.9% .9 of these guys. So I... I chose anesthesiology. When I was finishing my residency, I wasn't sure what kind of anesthesiologist I wanted to be. I didn't want to go in a hospital and be a hospital-based anesthesiologist. I had spent so many years training and in hospitals. <clears throat> and so I looked around, saw that there were surgeons that really wanted to operate in their office, but there were no anesthesiologists at the time willing to take the risk to go into a doctor's office. And mainly because both the drugs and monitors were geared for hospital-based surgery. And people were afraid they'd hurt people. They were afraid they couldn't really accomplish the desired effect. I had a different attitude towards that. I um, thought that I could do that in a doctor's office safely. I was one of the creators of office-based anesthesia in New York City. I started in the cosmetic and reconstructive surgery world. And eight years after I began, Michael was the patient of one of the surgeons. So there you are, and there's Michael Jackson, and you're going, holy crap, this is Michael Jackson. <laughs> it's even better than that, because the way I start the book is how this happened. And so you can imagine in the world of uh, New York City cosmetic and reconstructive surgery, there are lots of celebrity patients. Right. <laughs> and, and I was very good at what I did, but... Beyond that, having been in the rock and roll business, I knew how to relate to celebrities different than most. And, and the surgeons like that because it's very important in medicine and in other things, I'm sure, to not treat people differently. People have a tendency of a celebrity comes in your office, all of a sudden you're going to do things differently because it's a celebrity. And when you start doing things differently, bad things start to happen. But having been around celebrity, I was not impressed by celebrity. Yes, I was a little, but I knew better than to act differently, and I knew better than to change my routine. Right. So when we had a celebrity patient, the surgeon would give me a heads up beforehand, because the night before, it would be my job to speak to the patient, to make them feel comfortable, get their medical history, and tell them what was going to go on from an anesthetic point of view. And with celebrities, many times they preferred calling me to me calling them. So the book opens with me sitting in my apartment and the guy calls and he makes a big deal and goes through a whole big joke of who do you think it is and who do you think it is? And he tells me Michael's going to call me in 15 minutes. And sure enough, hey, Rock, you know, <laughs> 15 minutes later, there he was on the telephone. And then 
So we got to meet on the phone the day before, talk about the procedure, anesthesia, medical history a little bit. And then I met him actually face to face the next day. Hmm. Was he overly concerned or is he like, oh, this is old hat to him? Old hat. Hmm. <laughs> the only thing he was concerned now, I told you that anesthesiologists didn't want to do office surgery because the drugs and monitors were bad. Shortly after I started my practice, a new drug came into being, and that drug was called propofol. And that was really a miraculous drug. Changed the practice of anesthesiology, and in doing so, changed the practice of office surgery for sure. I mean, you're getting your uh, colonoscopies in the office today because of propofol. <laughs> Just to give you an idea. At any rate, uh, the one thing he did ask is, would I be using that? Hmm. And of course, I would be using it because it was the miracle drug and you'd be a fool not to use it. And I had used it on thousands and thousands of cases prior to Michael. Oh, I'm not going to call you Dr. Feelgood. I think Dr. Sleepgood is a better uh, <laughs> better uh, name for you, <laughs> better nickname. I, I got one question to ask you as uh, being a, an anesthesiologist. So what's one of the funniest things you've heard a patient say right before they go under? Because, you know, you're supposed to like, my mom always told me, it was like, if you get anesthesiology or if you get, you know, put under, you know, always like try to count down from 10 to 1 or, you know, ask, you know, whatever it is. What's, what's the thing you hear mostly? Or Well, you see, I had a different method altogether. Uh, I felt, all right, bear with me here, Kevin. <laughs> I felt that... Because of the kind of medications that I used and because of the way I gave anesthesia, and I used music in the, in the operating room. I put headphones on people with non-worded, spiritually uplifting music. Because my theory was if I prepare the patient correctly and if I use the correct combination of drugs and if I use the right music and the operating room is the right set and setting, so to speak, I could give that patient a uniquely... Uh, separate experience from the surgery. And so that's exactly how I operated. I would speak to people the night before. I would actually give them a creative visualization. I knew how to mix my drugs quite well, trust me. <laughs> I, I had a big array of uh, spiritually non-worded music, of new age music, so right. to speak, yeah. And... Um, I'm telling you, people walked out of my operating room happy. Having said that, there was no talking when you went to sleep. <laughs> he would, I would put you in a state, almost hypnotize you. <laughs> nice, nice. And this is, I'm sure every every doctor's like, you got to do what you got to do, man. Do it. Address my office to whatever you need to be done. People dug it, man. I'm telling you, oh, it, I'm it sure. was it was a much better experience than you know walking into a cold room with bright lights and clanking instruments right. and all kinds of shit. And then, you know, yeah, count backwards. Yeah, you'll have a great experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next time I go under, I'm, I'm calling you, man. <laughs> I'll make sure we get that hooked Unfortunately, up. Unfortunately, I'm retired. But hopefully people <laughs> picked up on my trip and are doing it. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Exactly. You'll know who to go to is what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dr. Neil Ratner here. Uh, you can find him online, neilratnerrockdoc.com. His uh, memoir uh, is just published entitled Rock Doc, His History and Stories from Being a, 
a drummer in rock and roll to a, and a famous anesthesiologist and uh, now here on the mothership getting strange and unusual uh, i totally appreciate your time joining us and uh, talking with us and sharing your stories you know we talk about uh, the strange and unusual on here it's aliens ufos bigfoot and ghosts so you know you might not have seen ufos but any paranormal activity in that direction uh, let's see paranormal activity in that direction you know uh I don't know that I can say that I have. Um, I definitely believe in spirits of some sort. You know, I've had experiences where things do seem of the paranormal nature. Right. Uh, things get moved, things disappear. Um, um, but I can't say specifically that I've had, you know, a really hardcore paranormal experience. So you can't say like Michael Jackson never visited you after since then? Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that. If you go and look on the internet, some magazine decided that he had visited me. And when I did this interview I didn't want to do with Sanjay Gupta, there's a picture of me. And, and if you look closely, you could sort of make out Michael's image in a in a window above my head. <laughs> oh, really, I'm looking that up for sure. That will <laughs> get up. I don't know if it's still there, but it was there for a while. All right. No, I, I'm sure it is. It's the internet. I, you know, it's funny is when they went to uh, Neverland, they had a, a video shot. They were doing a news story inside the place, and you can see like down the hall, you can see like a shadow across the hall or something like that. Um, so some people are saying it's Michael's ghost, you know, roaming around his own building, you know, so who knows? Well, it's interesting that you said that because I'll tell you for real, I swear to God in writing this book, I really felt he was speaking through me. Hmm. I really got that feeling that his presence was here much of the time, you know, that he was sort of over my left shoulder or something. Right. You know, and Michael, I think, was, you know, occasionally we talked about paranormal. He was open to a lot of stuff. Well, I'm sure he was. I mean, he was, I mean, he had a lot of free time on his hands to do that kind of thinking. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> Did he ever bring up anything? Were you kind of like chatty with him at all? or? Uh... Oh, we were, we were chatty and we talked about everything. And, I, you know, before you called, I was trying to think if we ever actually talked about it. But I, I'm quite sure we did. And I'm quite sure he was of the same opinion as I. Um, you know, he definitely was open to uh, paranormal activity and to alien types of stuff. Now, of course, he couldn't be public about that because people thought he was nuts anyway. And all kinds of ridiculous stories, you know, yeah. went around about him. But you know who was a good friend of his? Yuri Geller. Okay. You know who Yuri Geller is? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I know the name. I'm just Yuri Geller got famous in the, uh, I forget when it was, maybe 60s or 70s, for bending spoons. Okay. He went on Johnny Carson or something. And he was the first, you know, psychic of that sort who could actually do something like that. Not like Amazing Randy or something like that. Look him up. You'll, you'll see. He was a very, he's still alive. He's an Israeli psychic. And Michael and he were extremely good friends. Interesting. All right. So, yeah, he definitely, yeah. He definitely leaned in that direction, I'm sure. Um, oh, absolutely. And I'll tell you another guy, and I don't know if you think there's any paranormal activity here that Michael was fascinated with, was David Blaine. Okay. So he was digging him. 
you know, David Blaine does some yeah. pretty incredible stuff. Who yeah. knows where he gets that power from? I, yeah, I don't know, man. I, it's it's a lot of that's confidence. I think. <laughs> I think it, it's you know, selling what they're doing, man. Confidence. <laughs> I don't know that I could ever have confidence like that. I, yeah, okay, I'll accept that. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be something. I mean, because they're they're selling it great. I mean, whether it's a, I, I don't know what kind of magic it is. You know, the whole levitation type of thing, or what they're doing to do what they do is. Um, I mean, it's one of those secrets I don't want to know. You know, when they have those magicians tell secrets, I'm like, no, let's keep this kind of like the way it is. Of course. I mean, it spoils the fun, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely, it does. And I'm glad people can do something like that because it, <laughs> you know, makes, it makes some nights interesting, I guess you can say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> For sure. Um, but yeah, and Neverland, by the way, was an incredible place. Oh, you went and visited. I got to go there on four different occasions. Oh, interesting. And, and they were all private, pretty much. Once with my wife and just Michael and the kids. Once basically just me and Michael. Once uh, with a couple of people there, a guy named Mark Lester. But it was incredible, incredible place. He built himself a hell of a place, I can tell you. Wow, man. He probably misses you, man. Uh, I miss him. Yeah. <laughs> so whatever, you know. Yeah, right. I just try and keep him alive in my mind and certainly with the book. You're right. Well, yeah, absolutely. And uh, very cool for you to share these with us. And you got the book, a lot more involved in the book, of course, Rock Doc from Dr. Neil Ratner. His uh, website is neilratnerrockdoc.com. Oh, wait, I, I just thought of something really interesting. Yeah. Talking about Michael and aliens and stuff. Yeah. The way I went on the history tour, I was on the end of the history tour with her. And I don't know if you've ever seen how he opened the tour. Mm -mm. He comes out of a spacecraft. Oh, okay. He comes out of a spacecraft in kind of a spacesuit. So you might want to just check that out. You'll get a kick out of it after our conversation. That's, uh, <laughs> I, I totally will. And I wonder if that comes from, you know, when you become a big star like that, I mean, none of us, I mean, how, how small of a percentage of people will make it to that level? You know, it's such a small percentage of, uh, of talent to get to that point. And here he is. I'm wondering if he thinks to himself, am I not like everybody else? Am I, am I, you know, from a different planet because I'm so different from everybody else. There were many people who thought that. I don't know that he thought that of himself, uh, but certainly others did. And I think the whole space imagery of now that I'm thinking about it, what he did on the history tour, that must have had some inner meaning somewhere. Yeah, I'm sure. Probably deeply rooted that he's trying to express <laughs> through some through some way, I guess. It's interesting stuff. Uh, Got a question for you. Sure, go ahead. What's what's your ex personal experience with alien encounter? Uh, mine is uh, I've I've only seen things in the sky when I was about nineteen. I, I grew up in Southern California, Los Angeles area, um, the San Fernando Valley. So uh, Michael Jackson's home wasn't too far from where I live. Um, but yeah. uh, I grew up in Northridge and uh, went to school, a couple community colleges, and one was in Silmar. And I was in class one day. I was kind of like standing outside the classroom. I looked up high in the sky and just looking up in the sky, and I see these three black triangles and hmm. each and they're in a triangle formation so but they're small enough where there's a big space in between each one so i was kind of staring at it and that was my first time i ever saw something i stared at it until i couldn't look at it anymore and then they had like slowly one by one disappeared and that had been it until i started doing this show and a couple years ago my co-host and i we were done this is in phoenix i lived in phoenix for 20 years i we were right by the airport I stepped out of our building after we did our show. We looked up at the sky, and there's this like this ball or this sphere, kind of going up and down, not side to side, but up and down. And then another ball popped out from that, 
And wow. then and then somehow somehow somewhere came a plane and the balls disappeared. Wow. And it turned into this this plane, which I don't know, that's not really a flight pattern over Phoenix, but it could be, I guess. It was just uh it was really fascinating wow. to see. And then um recently out in Hollywood, I, I was driving down there, I was right right off of Highland and Hollywood Boulevard. I was looking up up at the sky, and I saw this kind of the what is the one wing fighters, the B twos. Yeah, um, yeah. It looked like a B two, but it looked like a big B two, and it looked like a kind of in that V formation. And then it, there was another plane right next to it. This is really high in the sky, and this black plane went right over the the other white plane, and then like disappeared. Wow. That's why. That's all I seen. I mean, that, that was really interesting to me. That's a lot, man. <laughs> but it is. I mean, people would like to know you do a show on it. <laughs> oh, I've well, we talked about the other stuff, the the airplane stuff. That's this is the first time I actually mentioned it to anybody. No, oh, wow. So cool. I haven't because uh, my first show was already recorded when I saw this, uh-huh. and then um, I just was waiting for the right time to to put it in the show. So, but um, cool. that's uh-huh. it. I haven't really seen any beings or anything like that. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but I, I believe we've all been. I really truly believe we've all once been abducted because I just feel like we've all had an experience outside this world, but we just, some of us just don't know it and don't, don't remember it. And the ones that do remember it are kind of shit out of luck that they remember it. You know, they have that gene in their brain that says, you're going to remember this. Sorry. I got one more question. Sure. (laughs) May sound offbeat. I'm just curious uh, how you'll answer it. No, I'm the interviewer. Um, (laughs) Do you think there's any relationship between psychedelics and paranormal activity, aliens, any of the thing you're talking about? I would say it might make you more in tune to that, I guess, to spirits, if you will, or to, you know, other dimensions. You might be a little more open and more, you know, in line with it. What about the idea that that those type of plants were placed here for us to get that kind of wisdom? Yeah, I absolutely believe so. That's yeah, we, we were meant to find it, and maybe that's one of the aliens. They they come down and told this tribe, hey, if you take a little bit from this tree and a little bit of that tree and the bark from this tree, and you mix it up, you're gonna get really, f- <laughs> you know. I mean, if you ever read, you know, because it's another topic that I'm interested in. I don't talk about it in the book. But if we, uh, if you've ever read any of Terrence McKenna stuff. Uh, I haven't really dove into his uh, his work yet. Well, he talks a lot about the alien about mushrooms being an alien intelligence. So, just well, uh, interesting. Well, they're also. <laughs> don't, I think they say like man came out of apes eating mushrooms, right? Isn't that one of the? Uh, there you go. I've heard that. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, there's a uh, um, Lloyd Pye is his name, and he he's uh, did a documentary about basically. The the changing from the Neanderthal to a monkey, you know that the monkey to the Neanderthal man. Uh-huh. There's that space in between, that missing link we talk about. And he's like, "There's just there's nothing there. It just goes from monkey to man. There's no like gradual change at all." And, well, we keep looking for that, and we're never finding it. Right. So, what is it? Was it was it mushrooms that all of a sudden, boom, they've got a conscience and figured out what what the hell is this all about? What are we doing? You know, or was it like? They took the genes of a monkey and genes of an alien race and made man. Yeah, there's all kinds of possibilities. I know. Unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever know the answers in our lifetime, but it would be cool if we did. It would be cool. <laughs> it would be cool. And, you know, that's maybe some of that disclosure that's going to come down the line before uh, before it all ends for all of us, <laughs> you know. 
Well, if you hear of anything, let me know, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you likewise, man. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you might have more people in the know than I do. Um, <laughs> no, cool. Very cool talking with you. Um, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for sharing and being on. And then thanks for being strange and unusual with us here on the Mothership Radio Show. Well, my pleasure. And thank you, Kevin. It was a, a fascinating conversation. Well, I, appreciate I look forward to talking again sometime. I appreciate that. And absolutely. So anything strange and unusual happens, let me know. I'll totally uh, go down that uh, line. And uh, I'd love to have you back on. It's been great. Thanks. Appreciate right, it. Right on, Neil. Thanks so much. Take care, man. Welcome back to the Mothership Radio Show, and I want to thank the rock doc, Dr. Neil Ratner, for spending some time. All right, so a story's been circulating online again, and this story's been around for a while, but the headline reads, 12 million Americans believe lizard people run our country. I am the lizard king. So, this was posted in uh, 2013, April 2nd, so good six years ago, plus, and... And if it's 12 million Americans believe lizard people run our country back then, I wonder if the number has jumped up. Now, I tried to find some other surveys online. I wasn't able to find any that involved people believing in lizard people running the world. Public policy polling is the place that did this, and they posted the results. Now, the last poll I saw about aliens was a year and a half ago, January 30th, 2018, and that one was done through uh, rdrnews.com. Survey nearly half of Americans believe in aliens. Are you on drugs? I am today. So to give you a perspective on uh, the 12 million people believing in the lizard people running the planet, more or less running America, I'll go into the results real quick. Um, they had, of course, asked other questions. So they had 90 million Americans believe aliens exist. 66 million think aliens landed at Roswell in 1948. Almost 45 million people believe that Bigfoot exists. And a slew of other conspiracy questions asked of the public, again, back in, 19, back in 2013 when this report came out. I went, again, on the public policy polling site. I couldn't find anything current, so this was the last one. So other conspiracies that they asked. The number one conspiracy believed by Americans is that JFK was killed by a conspiracy. 51% of Americans believe in, in this. And then they go into the New World Order. Uh, 28% believe in that. Hussein was involved in 9-11. 28% believed in that. Uh, the government controls minds with TV. 15% believe in that. That's 47 million people. Fluoride is dangerous. 9%. We think we kind of know that, don't we? And uh, the, moon the moon landing was faked. 7%. So, I mean, it's obviously in there, but the one that I love the most on this list, McCartney died in 1966. <laughs> so that's actually funny that they put it on there because there was or there is a documentary, Paul McCartney is Really Dead. I've talked about this before in my past shows, and it's interesting to watch. They think he died in a car crash, lost his head, they wrote a song about it, and... They found a replacement, Paul, apparently from Ohio. <laughs> so there's all these, like, clues to, like, this could be true. And the documentary is done by George Harrison, apparently. It's his deathbed. When somebody came into his house and stabbed him, he was dying, and he thought he'd record himself telling the story of what they call, or who they called, uh, Fall McCartney, as the fake Paul. For me, it was only two weeks ago that I saw the man known as Paul McCartney and told him 
I was going to tell the truth about what we had done, that I couldn't keep up the deception any longer. And he's recording this, and what's interesting is like they show the recorder, which is like the small little micro cassette. The quality of that tape could not produce the quality you hear in the documentary of George's voice telling the story. For it was many years ago, in 1966, that my mates and I promised never to tell the story that I'm about to tell. If everyone found out that he had died, there would have been mass suicide. That's the theory. So, interesting poll here uh, that these guys posted up and asked questions of. By the way, the lizard people, the 12 million that, that believe that lizard people control politics and control the, the planet, uh, that's the bottom of the whole list. That's 4% of Americans believe in that. What do you believe? I don't believe you. Well, I like to keep my mind open myself, so just so you know, that's, what we're, that's why we're here on The Strange and Unusual, to find the answers to questions we don't want the answers to. Or maybe we do. We're going to come back. I'll tell you about Aleister Crowley's Lakeside Cabin by Loch Ness. Yeah, somebody bought it, and now you can uh, get some health and well-being from it, unless you have to uh, dodge the spirits haunting it. We'll come back and hear that. But in the meantime, we got to play a song. And if I'm playing Aleister Crowley, man, I think there's only one song I can really play. It's Ozzy Osbourne. And I used to play the beginning part of this song as an underbed for my tape recorder answering machine. <laughs> yeah, that's how we had to do it back in the day, man. Oh, why am I hippie -ish? That's not even that long ago, but yes, it is. And the technology has changed so much that it seems like, wow, that's my going uphill both ways in the snow to school story. All right, we'll tack another one onto that list. It's the Mothership Radio Show, The Strange and Unusual. The Pentagram, dedicated to Henry Foreman. In the years of the primal force, in the dawn of terrestrial birth, man mastered the mammoth and horse, and man was the lord of the earth. He made him in hollow skin from the heart of an holy tree. He compassed the earth therein, and man was the lord of the sea. He controlled the vigorous steam. He harnessed the lightning for hire. He drove the celestial team. And man was the lord of the fire. Deep mouthed from their thrones, deep seated. The choirs of the eons declare the last of the demons defeated. And man is the lord of the air. Arise, O man, in thy strength. The kingdom is thine to inherit. Till the high gods witness at length that man is the lord of his spirit. The haunting voice of Aleister Crowley, a very well-known dark magic type of character in the turn of the century. He owned a house out on the south side of Loch Ness in Scotland. It was built in the 18th century. And it was called Bolskine House, B-O-L-E-S-K-I-N-E. -E. He lived there between 1899 and 1933. And this dude was kind of known as being the most wicked man who lived. Black magic rituals were performed at this place. So apparently the person who owned it next committed suicide with a shotgun. But I don't know if you know this, Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page, he bought this pad. He lived there for a minute, and he had a caretaker who had just supervised the property, reported witnessing weird events, suggesting that this place was haunted, or maybe even cursed. Do not go in there. Woo! So it's been around for a while, 
And unfortunately, a fire broke out in 2015. Now, you think with all that kind of negative energy that <laughs> maybe something worse would have happened sooner, but it took this long. So a fire broke out, and a, a real big portion of the building was damaged. Basically, the owner had to sell, sell the building and the surrounding region. So four years later, someone bought the property. It was a couple of investors. They're planning to restore this building and open it to the public. So this is a quote from their website, quote, Upon its complete restoration, our volunteers intend to use the estate to promote education on the heritage of the house, to welcome the enjoyment of its structure and surrounding gardens, and to help to generate awareness of health and wellness. That's the Bolskine Foundation. With the spirits hanging around and people seeking health and wellness, I'm wondering how that's going to work out. Hey, come here. I got something good for you. Come on. I, I would check the Yelp reviews before you book your trip, although it would be an interesting place to stay if you're kind of adventurous that way. That's the strange and unusual, and that is happening. That is real. That's not make-believe, by the way. That's, that's, maybe it's real. Yes, that is real. That's actually happening. So yeah, not only do you get to stay at the place for health and well-being, but there's a good chance you can see the Loch Ness Monster. So that's like a double whammy. Not now that I'm thinking about that, going, all right, well, maybe we might have to... Well, let's think about this again. <laughs> we'll have to keep an eye on this place. How about that? So, all right. That's Strange and Unusual here on the Mothership Radio Show. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being strange and unusual with me every week for one hour on Phoenix's The Alt 93.9 FM KWSS online at kwss.org. You can also find the show on the phone through the TuneIn app. Just download KWSS that way as well. Uh, you can find me, the show, at themothershipradioshow.com. You can follow us on podcasts like, oh, I don't know, uh, Apple, Google, and Spotify. So, yes, we're on Spotify now, which is very cool. And, of course, SoundCloud. So uh, that's, that's where you can find the show. Tune in. Get lost, but don't get too lost. We have another week, another show. It's more topics, more strange and unusual to get to right here on the Mothership Radio Show. Thank you, and keep watching the sky.